after these words. And as Jesus was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all of the miracles that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and he said to them, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached, he saw the city, and he wept over it. This is our text, dear friends in Christ. Surely we all have our favorite kings and our favorite queens from ancient lore. And I suppose in good part, the favorite king or queen that we would have depends upon our ethnic origin. For example, if you're English, it might be a Queen Victoria or a Queen Elizabeth or a King Henry VIII of Tudor fame or King Arthur, if he even existed, because debate still rages on that question. Or if you're French, it might be Charles the Bald or Charles the Fat or Charles the Simple. The French had a rather good sense of humor when it came to reflecting upon the names of their kings. Or if you're German, it might have been Maximilian I or the second or the third, or perhaps it was uh, Wilhelm I or the second. Or if you're Hawaiian, King Kalakuba, who was the Mary monarch, or Emperor Jimmy of Japan, or the Qin dynasty from which China gets its name, and one of those emperors. It all depends, in part, I suppose, upon what your ethnic origin might be. One of my favorite kings of Scandinavian history was the Viking king named Canute, who ruled about 1000 AD. And Canute ruled not over only, only over uh, Denmark, but he also then ruled over Norway, and he ruled over England as well. He was also the first Norse king to be a truly Christian king who was insistent upon rebuilding all of the monasteries and all of the missions and all of the churches that had been torn down by the Vikings in their marauding that they had done prior to his becoming king and he rebuilt them all with determination and because of his popular and his successful reign he was perceived by many of his subjects to be just about invincible and so to convince his subjects that he was not indeed invincible. The legend goes that he one day ordered his throne to be brought down to the ocean's shore. And escorted by his court, he proceeded to have his throne set right at the water's edge. And then he proceeded to the throne and he sat in the throne and needless to say, as the waves came closer and closer and the tide arose, the defiant waves coming and lapping everything back and forth, including the throne upon which King Canute sat, those attending him became wet themselves and rolled into a frenzy, but the king just sat there. And so the legend goes that he sat there weeping, not in fear, not in frustration that the tide wouldn't obey him when he commanded it to stop, because he knew from the outset that it wouldn't obey him. He wept because as he sat there, he thought about his sovereign. He thought about his king of kings, his lord, 
who could still silence the wind and silence the waves and command them to stop and they would obey him. And yet how that king of kings once vacated his throne in heaven and set aside his power and his glory so that he could become man, so that he could weep for Canute, and so that he could bleed for him and die for him. And one historian tells us that King Canute was so moved by the experience of it all that he took off his crown and he placed it upon a statue of the crucified Christ and he never wore it again. Perhaps it would be good for all of us sometime in the days of this Holy Week to come to make a trek to the ocean, a Palm Sunday pilgrimage, if you might, and to stand ourselves there at the shore and to watch that tide coming in and going out and those waves rolling in and rolling out, that cadence of it all reminding us of our own mortality as time passes on. Perhaps then we too would weep to think that he who with a single word could still those very waves and could stop them and reverse their roll and silence their roar, once vacated his royal throne so that he could indeed come and weep for us and bleed for us and die for us as well. Or perhaps as Palm Sunday pilgrims of sorts, we could take ourselves to some high place, go down Highway 9, go up to the top of Highway 9 that looks over the city of San Jose or go to San Francisco to Twin Peaks or to Coit Tower or to Mount Tamalpais and stand in one of those heights and look down upon the city. And perhaps we too then would weep, at least inside, to think of the teeming masses, the teeming masses of people who still reject our Lord Jesus today, even as he wept, pausing at the Mount of Olives, overlooking the city of his rejection so long ago. There at Jerusalem had lived and reigned the greatest of kings, King David, Solomon, Uzziah, Hezekiah, Josiah. There had spoken the great prophets Nathan and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Zechariah. Never had there been a city like this holy Jerusalem, a city with such a past. And yet, because of their rejection of the true Messiah, of God in the flesh coming for them, because of that rejection, it became a city of impending doom. And no wonder our text says when he beheld the city, he wept over it. He himself explains why, for the days shall come upon thee, said he, with tears in his eyes, that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee round about, and hem thee in on every side, and shall lay thee level with the ground, and thy children with thee, and they shall not leave thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Thirty years after Jesus wept on the very ground where his donkey paused, the 10th Roman Legion was encamped. And you know what it was doing there. It was shutting off every supply to the city of Jerusalem. And the Roman general Titus 
encircles the city with a palisade with these sharp pointed stakes five miles long all around the city these pointed stakes upon which would later hang the thousands of bodies of those who tried to escape the famine that was occurred in the surrounded cities so terrible was the spectacle that, that the, the city was finally restored and burned and general titus himself went into the city and history tells us that he was sickened by the sight of what he even as a roman general there saw and all because thou o jerusalem knowest not the time of thy visitation how many people still today refuse to see this day as their day of the Lord's gracious visitation. How many children this day in neighborhoods around this sanctuary in the neighborhood in which you live know not the Christ the crucified because they're deprived of knowing him. They will never in their entire lives sing the words that our children saying this morning, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Think about it, hundreds, yea, thousands, who because of the unregenerate conditions of their own hearts face a future which will be compassed around and encompassed by and hemmed in on every side by sin's devastation which will leave no stone of their lives unturned. How many men and women, often our colleagues at work, and our friends are striving with such dedicated fervor to lay up for themselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal only to refuse that imperishable gift, that imperishable treasure which Christ has reserved in heaven for all of those who love him. How many people's lives are littered with disposable relationships and with wrappings of this or that promise that contained no substance, broken promises that have shattered their lives. And yet there stands before them one who wept for the world, one who says, come unto me all ye who labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest, rest for the restless. The one who wants to establish an eternal relationship with them and who offers them on this day of their visitation things that will never ever break promises never broken will they miss this day of his gracious visitation Joseph Addison Alexander once wrote these words he said there's a time we know not when a point we know not where that marks the destiny of men for glory or for despair. There's a line by us unseen that crosses every path, that hidden boundary between God's patience and God's wrath. There are so many who need to know that this day is the day of the Lord's gracious visitation. So many who need to know that beyond the story of Palm Sunday, there's even a greater story that unfolds, for no story ever told about a man's love for others is greater and more important to each and every one of us than the story, the true story, of what happened to Jesus after he entered into Jerusalem on that day of his rejection. Beyond the weeping of the Mount of Olives on 
another mount called Calvary, the greatest story ever told unfolds. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus shed sympathetic tears. But on the Mount called Calvary, Jesus shed sacrificial blood. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus cries. But on the Mount called Calvary, Jesus dies for your sins, for mine, and for those of the whole world. As the hymn writer so beautifully put it, and as we sang last Sunday, sometimes they strew his way and his sweet praises sing, resounding all the day, Hosanna to their king, then crucify is all their breath, and for his death they thirst and they cry. The city over which Jesus wept would have given him and should have given him the keys of the city. Instead, they gave him a cross of the city outside of the city walls. But it would be, and this is the way God so often works things, despite man, despite man's sin, and indeed for man's sin, that very cross that the city would give him would be the instrument by which the doors of the eternal city, it would be the key by which the doors of the eternal city would be for mankind ever opened. For all who by faith know that same Jesus Christ, the same Christ that today came into Jerusalem, not to be the conquering king, but to be the suffering servant and the savior of all mankind. I began today by telling you about a king who wept. Let me conclude by telling you the story of another man who wept. It was during the Civil War. A man was sitting on a park bench in Washington, D.C., it said, and he was crying. You see, his son, under great emotional distress, had deserted his post in battle and he was going to be shot by the firing squad soon. The father had come to the Capitol in Washington, D.C., hoping to see President Lincoln. But understandably, he wasn't able to get in to see him. He wasn't able to get through the front gates. People passed by. No one stopped to listen to him. He, in frustration, the man was simply sitting there on that park bench crying. And finally, a little boy paused, and he asked the man why he was crying. And in his emotional distress, the man told the boy a story. If only I could talk to the president, he said, I know that the president would grant my son pardon. And the young boy took the man by the hand, and he said, Sir, come with me. And when they came to the front gate of the White House, hand in hand, they walked right past the guards, no questions asked. Well, the man was amazed. They came to the room where the president was conferring with his generals and some members of his cabinet, and the boy escorted the man right past the detachment of soldiers at the door. And then all conversations stopped when the young boy jumped upon the president's lap and he said, Daddy, there's a man that I want you to meet. He needs our help. The man told the president his story, and the son received the presidential pardon because the son of the president took an interest in his plight. The Son of God has taken more than simply a sympathetic interest in your plight. Because mere words or even a sympathetic tear on our behalf were not enough to gain our pardon. Not enough at all. He put himself in our place. He put himself on our cross. 
and he was there executed for our transgressions. He put himself where we deserve to be in order that we someday might be where he now is. And that's why we, having paused with him as he weeps in the Mount of Olives, shout not only, Hosanna, save us now, but that's why we, reliving and recounting the holiest of all days in the history of the world, must begin this holy week by saying and by singing, Ride on, Lord Jesus. Ride on in majesty and lowly pomp. Ride on to die. Bow thy meek head to mortal pain. Then take, O Christ, thy power and reign. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.